We'll open your Bibles to chapter 13 and 14 as we get into our, our lesson this morning. Very quickly, I'll just make some concluding comments on the 13th chapter of Romans. Uh, we kind of ended on this slide last week where the emphasis of the last few verses is that uh, uh, we are called spiritually to arms, and basically there are kind of three major points in those last few verses. In the context of this section where we are called to present sacrificially our bodies, our lives, alive to God, that includes or that involves as well this idea of adorning and arming ourselves with light in Christ. Everything that we do and everything about us needs to reflect that. Uh, and that is a, uh, a growth process for all of us. That we are to reflect that we are devoted to God and that we are transformed, we are changed by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That will include the idea of we are to give no place, no time for any kinds of deeds of darkness. Or as Paul writes elsewhere, the works of the flesh. Uh, influence of darkness you know, you know, must be removed, kind of taken out of our life. You know, you know, and the reason why, well, I think uh, a very uh, fundamental concept is found in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, when basically it says, love does not behave itself unbecomingly. You know, we are to be reflections of love, and so that means remove the darkness, Remove the things that are the opposite of light, that are in opposition to your Lord and your King. And also in those verses, it talked about the idea of the salvation and how close it is for all of us. And that understanding and that uh, uh, recognition and acknowledgement you know, should, should stir us up you know, every day you know, from not being indifferent or inactive or lethargic in any way, but rather we are being provoked, we've been stirred, motivated to greater spiritual stewardship. And that's kind of how chapter 13 ends. Before going into chapter 14, I wanted to tie in this idea of the thread that is woven throughout these chapters that focuses on the idea of the fulfillment of divine law is love. Yeah, and so how we treat others and how we treat our brethren you know, needs to reflect love. And so there's a number of passages, verses that we've already looked at in the 12th and 13th chapters where we're told, let love be without hypocrisy, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Uh, owe nothing to anyone except to uh, love one another and love does no wrong to a neighbor. If you think about this whole theme of Romans, the man of faith that submits to God's will, that uh, has an obedient allegiance to the king, well, that man of faith is going to work out his salvation with the labor of love. And you're seeing that throughout you know, these chapters, uh, how that love is manifested in a practical way in relationships. And so the Lord's commandments or the Lord's instruction and teaching in chapters 12 and 13 are actually the groundwork that guides brothers in Christ to work through differences. And particularly the differences that is addressed in Romans chapter 14. 
You know, harsh or bitter words toward brethren or, you know, biting and devouring reactions, well, those are not conducive to achieve unity. Those kind of things are out of character to those who have been redeemed, and definitely those kind of things are the opposite of being called to love without hypocrisy. Now, Paul is not the only one that writes about the, you know, the love that we have to emulate and cultivate and maintain with one another in Christ. For example, Peter as well you know, gives us the admonition and the exhortation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 22, he says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. That's the first half of the sentence. You see, since you have done this and since you have this goal, you know, you know, he says, fervently love one another from the heart. I find it very interesting that one verse, he says, you've been purified through obedience to the truth for the purpose of love. And then he says, okay, so now love each other. Here's just a thought question. I'm not necessarily looking for an answer. Just for a second or two, just think about this. Do you think that the Lord says so much about love and even particularly loving your spiritual brethren you think, you know, he says that, and he talks about it, and he teaches so much about it because it's a challenge? You know, it's not always so easy. It's easy to teach. It's easy to talk about. It's not always easy to practice every day. And particularly when there are differences, when there is conflict, when there is tension, that's where the real test of love comes into play, and that's kind of what chapter 14 is about. There are some things that there is some tension created by some differences among the brethren at Rome. And so Paul, by the Spirit, I should say the Spirit through Paul, is now addressing those unique issues. The weekly briefing for today's lesson is simply this, as you already know. And that is, brotherly love does not put a stumbling block does not put a place an offense before one in Christ by judging his conscientious convictions that are in the Lord. And that's kind of the overall thought for the first 15 verses of chapter 14. And we will not, like say, today and next week, you know, we cover chapter 14 and get a little bit into chapter 15 next week as well. With that said, let's read just a little bit. We won't read our whole section for today's discussion, but I want to start with the last verse of chapter 13. I want to start there and then just read on down through verse 9. So Romans chapter 13, verse 14, and then through the ninth verse of the 14th chapter. And I want you to see how, you know, chapter 13 leads into chapter 14. That's why I'm doing that. So chapter 13 ends with this instruction, with this command from the Lord, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment in, on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. 
are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. So let's begin our discussion of chapter 14. The first point I simply want to make is one that is quite clear in the early verses of this chapter, and that is the the one whom God has accepted, the one for whom Christ has died, we are told to receive or accept in loving fellowship. That's, that's the overall exhortation. The one that God has accepted, the one that Christ has died for, we are all to accept that one in loving fellowship. But let's kind of describe a little bit of the backdrop, the background of the setting uh, uh, for the Roman saints you know, in the first century. And what you would, would have in the church at Rome here. You know, the New Testament church at Rome, Catholicism was not even in its inception yet. And so, and so you're not talking about the Catholic church in Rome, you're talking about the Lord's church, the New Testament, the one true church in Rome. And what you have here, you have a brotherhood you know, in that city that is made up of all kinds of saved sinners. That's what you have. In the church at Rome, it is made up of all kinds of saved, cleansed sinners. As as is true in every congregate of God's people. That each body, each local gathering of Christians is a body of people of various kinds and backgrounds that are all different people, but what what unites them is they are all saved, cleansed, sanctified, justified sinners. And that's what, like I say, that's what Carrie did such a good job just again and again pounding our understanding of the first, first eight chapters, how we are justified by faith in God's grace as we submit to his will obediently. So in Rome, what you'd have, you'd have in the church, it would be made up of Jews and Gentiles. It would be made of citizens of the Roman Empire and non-citizens, it would have been people that were from, or let's say, out of Judaism, as well as others are out of idolatry. You, have, you would have rich and poor. There would have been servants and masters. There would have been those that had a religious background and therefore had religious traditions. And you have others who were not from a religious background and therefore they had no you know, religious traditions. So they were non-religious traditions in their life. You would have mature Christians and you would have immature Christians and you just have the whole spectrum of what this church was made up of. 
you know, so you have all these differences in the church of God's people in the capital of the Roman Empire, and Paul is writing to them this gospel message about how there's redemption only in Christ, and that redemption is what unites us as his people. So all of the people that are talked about in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, they were all called by the gospel, and they were all saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ the same way. You're not talking about people called and saved in different ways. No, they're all called and saved in the same way. You know, they're, they're not serving different lords. There's only one Lord, as Ephesians 4 talks about. Uh, they're, not, they're not following different gospels. And, and so the context here is not addressing the idea of false teaching or false you know, doctrines. You know, the gospel never approves of false teachings of men. And so these differences among the brethren at Rome, uh, and so, so they've got these differences, but they're all submitting to the one Lord, though. That is all their intent. You know, you know whether you were the eating one or not eating one, the observing one or not the observing one, either way, both sides of that fence, both of them, are seeking to submit to the Lord and they're holding to the one faith that has been once for all delivered. They've all been baptized of the one baptism. And so what you have here in chapter 14 is really Romans' account of a call to preserve the unity and the bond of peace with Christ-likeness. That's what this chapter is all about. It's about unity. It's a call to be united and stay united. And so it's it's. Paul's or the Spirit's account of unity in the context of the book of Romans, just like you had a similar call back in the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, where it talks about, you know, you know, we're to walk worthy of our calling in Christ, and it talks about the attitudes we need to have toward one another, the idea of forbearance and forgiveness and gentleness all the, and humility, all those attitudes, so that we would preserve the unity in the bond of peace. So that's what chapter 14 is all about, is unity. And how do you do that when you have these unique differences among the saints at Rome and in other churches as well that wrestled with similar uh, uh, differences because of their background and their history and perhaps maybe some of the baggage that came with that. So... The simple instruction is, okay, receive the weak in faith brother. That's verse 1. Accept the one who is weak in faith. Chapter 13 ended, ended by saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how 13 ended. 14 begins, accept the one who is weak in faith. The two go together. If I'm going to put on Christ, then I need to have an attitude. I'm going to accept the one that God accepts. I'm going to accept the one that God approves of. You know, so I think we need to define a little bit what we mean or what the text means when it talks about the weak in faith brother. In the context of Romans 14, chapter 14, weak in faith has to do with a brother's personal belief 
regarding the rightfulness of his own conduct and his own practices. That's what the weakened faith brother is about. It's about his personal belief regarding the rightfulness of his own conduct or his own uh, practices. It is not addressing, it's not a matter, you know, you know, he doesn't believe in God or not. That, it's not about belief in God or belief in Jesus. You know. They all believe in God, the one true God, and they all believe the one true Lord. It's neither is it this context in the, uh, about the practicing of deeds of the flesh. That's not, you know, that's not what this chapter is about. That's, you know, they're weak in faith because they're practicing sinful things. That's not what it's about. It's not talking about uh, deeds of the flesh, nor is it talking about congregational assemblies here. That's not the context of Romans 14, congregational assemblies. You're talking about individual Christians you know, practicing some things or not practicing things you know, in their own personal life based upon where they're coming from and based upon their understanding or lack of understanding, however you want to say that. And so what you have here is this weakened faith brother who has a belief about you know, you know, what's right or not right about certain specific things he's doing or not doing. And the point is, this weak in, brother, weak in faith brother has such strong convictions, he has such strong conviction that his personal conscience will not allow him to do something without it condemning him. That's how strong his conviction is. He, he has such a strong conviction that it does not allow him to do something that would go against his conscience, you know, because that would condemn him and he would feel that he is committing a sin. So conscience is involved in this, in this passage. And each person has to weigh their own conscience themselves. Now conscience is a guide. <laughs> we know that. God gave us our conscience. It's part of our God-created being. But we also know you know, just as other aspects of our God-created being, the conscience can be misguided. So yes, the conscience does serve as a guide. It, is, it, is, it can be imperfect, so we understand the conscience is not God. The conscience is not God. It's simply a personal guide that is affected by various values we have set. And so what you have here with this weak, weak in faith brother is it, it's all about individual pr- propriety as it relates to, particularly I think, two areas. One, as it relates to the law of Moses or not, or as it relates to idolatry or not. I think those are kind of the big areas that, you know, the specific you know, things that he addresses, talks about. And so this person is weak in faith simply because he has some personal beliefs about what's right or wrong for him to do. It does not mean he's ignorant. It does not mean he's not knowledgeable. He does, his conscience does, will not allow him to do this, you know, even though he may have the liberty to do it. But he can't move himself to do that yet. I think another term that has to go in defining this is later on in the fifth verse where it talks about the idea that the weak in faith concept also involves you know, this idea of that person is not convinced, that person is not persuaded, you know, or, or assured yet 
of whether or not he can do something. He's not, yeah, he has knowledge, but that knowledge has not moved into the point that he feels assured or convinced, persuaded about a certain kind of action. So he's not, he's not ignorant. Yeah. He was called by the gospel. You know, he was added by Christ when he obeyed the gospel. You know, he's not ignorant, nor, nor is he one that has no knowledge of the gospel. No, he's heard the, he's heard the message. He's under the new covenant like everyone else. Uh, he has received the law of liberty that's in Christ. He's under that law, you know, and he's seeking uh, uh, God's righteousness. But he's not convinced about some things. He's not persuaded about some particulars in his life, you know, particularly about removing some of those doubts that he has or changing some of his personal practices that he's done in his past. You know. Now, the, you know, these practices he's done, you know, you know, we're going to note, are matters that God has clearly you know, stated that you know, he has not required nor has he forbidden. So the two things... Once again, the two things that are specifically addressed here, and they are not the only two things that New Testament Christians wrestled with that were matters of liberties. But at Rome, these are the two, these are the two big ones for the Roman Christians. And it had to do with this idea of eating or not eating meats. And so you see that in chapter 14 in those verses that are up on, on the PowerPoint screen. And then also observing or not observing holy days. I find it interesting in chapter 14 that chapter 14 is not an exposition. It's not an exposition of why items are neither required or forbidden. That's not really, you know, that's what, chapter 14 is not taught. He's, he does, he's not going into a long discourse about why the eating of meats is or is not. It just simply says, it's okay for both. Same thing with the days. He doesn't go into long discourse about why you can or cannot observe days. It simply says, it's okay to, to do either. The whys of it are, would be found elsewhere. And I think, you know, you know, I think Romans addresses some of those whys. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I will make mention of that you know, very briefly. But you know, these are the two things, eating or not eating meats, observing or not observing holy days. Godly precepts under the law of Moses were no longer required. You know, Colossians 2 addresses that subject as well. And even in the Colossian church, in the church at Colossae, they were, they were dealing with some of these same things. And so that's why by the Spirit, Paul tells the, our Colossian brethren, he says, don't let anybody judge you about, you know, you know, Sabbaths and holy days and new moons, you know, because those things were an issue there as well. But we're told in chapter 14, the law and its precepts and decrees, that been, that's been nailed to the cross. As the Hebrew writer says, that, you know, that had become obsolete. And so the godly precepts of the law of Moses you know, are no longer required. But at the same time, you know, what about maybe the you know, eating of meat sold in the marketplace? Well, that meat may or may not have been sacrificed to an idol, but as 1 Corinthians 10 talks about, each Christian, each Christian 
has to discern for himself the circumstance by faith. And he's going to have to figure it out, how to work that out, whether he can buy that meat or not in the market and eat it. And so Paul addresses you know, that issue as well in 1 Corinthians you know, chapter 10. And so the thing, whether you were converted out of Judaism, you know, and you're no longer under the law of Moses, or whether you converted out of idolatry, and therefore you're no longer in participating in uh, acts that would be associated with idolatry, each Christian had to bear the fruits of his own repentance. Each one had to bear their fruits. And each one had to work through those particulars, depending what their, what their background was. And so, let me ask you this question. It's, you know, it's an obvious answer, I think, for you. Was it okay to have fellowship you know, in idolatry? Well, no, it's not okay to, to have fellowship with idolatry. We're to flee from those kind of things. You know? And Paul, in the New Testament, clearly brings it out. Put away all kinds of idolatry. Was it okay to seek uh, you know, justification by the law of Moses? Is it okay for me to be, you know, seek justification by the law of Moses? No, of course not. Those things have already been, in a sense, been talked about in Romans, Romans chapter 1 addresses the, whole, the, the big overview of idolatry. You know, Romans 1 and how idolatry is going to be manifested in all the various behaviors of, of mankind. But I think Romans 1 basically says, okay, you, know, you need to put away all kinds of idolatry. Romans 7 says, what about the law? He says, you know, you're no longer under the law because you are now married, you know, to another. Yeah. You, know, you have died to your first husband. Now you're married to a second husband. And so you are not committing adultery. You know, you know, Romans 7 is really not, you know, the point is not really about marriage and divorce. Even though there's applications there, Romans 7 is about we're not under the law of Moses. That's not going to justify us. You know, Christ is our justification. So, so there is, that has already been uh, uh, laid out and presented. But the, the difficult question is this. You know, were there specific applications? Were there specific applications that each Christian had to work out for himself? Yes. Yeah. You know, there were, there were specific things they had to work through themselves. Yeah. And, and, the two, and the two areas was this, the idea of eating or not eating and observing or not observing. Those were, those were the particular, those are the two particular specifics that the saints in Rome were wrestling with. And because you had people on both sides of the fence, as you say, they were being told you need to accept one another in loving fellowship. You need to let love be without hypocrisy. You need to be devoted to one another with brotherly love. Oh, nothing but to love one another. And so what you have here, you know, God ultimately is the one who decides what he approves of and what he disapproves of. God decides that. God is the one who decides what, he, what is permissible and what is forbidden. God decides that. 
In the context of Romans 14, these particular matters that are causing differences, you know, they were things when it came to being in Christ, in fellowship with God, seeking his righteousness, that, you know, God or the Lord did not require nor prohibit the differences, you know, about the specifics of the foods in the days. He's not introducing that, that the law, you're now under the law of Moses. That's not what he's talking about. That law has been done away with. You're married to someone else now. Yeah. And he's not talking about, uh, it's okay for you to commit idolatry. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about very unique particulars. Very quickly, I just want to throw up a couple of other you know, passages that illustrate to us other areas that were difficult. First Corinthians chapter 7 you know, talks about two of those. One is circumcision. You know, in chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, you know, what, what are we told about circumcision? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when it, when it comes to your salvation. Did you have people on, you know, on both sides of the fence on that question? Yes. And did the, did the area of circumcision sometimes create a conflict and a tension among brethren? Yes. And so circumcision was an issue that is addressed, for example, in, 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 to the, the, uh, the Corinthians, as well as you see also in, in Galatians, you see it in Acts 15. So that's just another area where whether you were circumcised or not circumcised, you know, it didn't matter. And, and if you wanted to practice one or not practice it, you know, it didn't matter. And the, and the same thing, go on to the other areas of discussion in chapter 7 when it talks about marriage. You know, God give, you know, the, the Spirit through Paul gives us some advice about marriage. He gives some commands, some instructions, but also some advice. And so, you know, talking about marriage, if one chooses to marry or not marry under the present circumstance that Paul is describing, if you married under that circumstance, were you sinning? No. And if you didn't marry, were you sinning? No. You know. Now he talks about some other things that you know, you know, that you know, marriage is 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 a binding agreement. You know, uh, if you put put away your spouse, you know, remain unmarried or be reconciled. But when it came to you know whether you choose to marry or not marry, you know, he says it really it. it it's okay either way. You can serve the Lord in both cases. And the same thing when it goes on, what about the parent that you know, chooses to, to allow you know, his virgin to marry or the other you know, Christian who chooses not to allow his virgin to marry? Either way, neither is sinning. And that's the point on, these, in, uh, on the point that he's making. And so you think about the one coming out of the law of Moses for his whole lifetime, you have refrained from certain foods that are labeled as unclean, and you just cannot make get yourself to eat pork. You, 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 know, you know you're not under the law of Moses. You understand, you know, you know, you have the liberty to eat pork, but you can't swallow the meat. It's okay, he lived the rest of his life without eating pork. But he is not to look at the brother who does eat pork as he's sinning because he's eating something unclean. 
That's the point. And the same thing with, you know, with the idol foods, you know, whether sacrificed or not, same thing. It's the same scenario there. And it applies to the same thing as the days, you know. You know, the Jew, the, the Jew that his whole life has observed the Sabbath day and, and, and for his rest of his life, the Sabbath day is put aside as something very special to him in relationship to God. And he understands that his Gentile brethren are not required to keep the Sabbath day. They are not under the law of Moses. That's been done away. We are not justified by the law of Moses. And that's okay with that. And it's interesting to me to find all of this is put in the context of this, and that is understand who's the judge. That every Christian is accountable to God. God is his judge. And he uses the illustration of a, the servant-master relationship. Who judges the servant? It's master. His master judges him. A different master judges someone who's not his servant? No, no. He says, you know, his own master is what judges him. And here, in the, it's really not talking about the physical servant-master relationship. It's using it as an illustration that ultimately... We are God's servants, and therefore God is the one who judges us. And he, God is the one who either approves or disapproves of our conduct and how we conscientiously choose to do or not do something. When it comes to him, as he says, basically, he says, We're not the ones who are judging each other's conscience. Yeah, God is. You know, I think, I think realize this is a very personal relationship in the sense that God is my judge. And God is Bill's judge. And so therefore, David doesn't judge Bill when he follows his conscience about matters that he has liberty to do or he feels he does not have liberty to do. The reason why God's the judge is because God knows the motive. God knows the intention of each of his children's hearts. I don't. I don't. I don't know. And I cannot know unless someone just outright tells me, this is my reason. Until I'm told specifically by that person himself, I don't know the heart. I can see fruit of action, but I don't know the motive or the conscience behind that action. And so God is the one who knows the whys behind a Christian's choices and the Christian's observances. And the point that is made in, in these verses is God is the one who knows if he is choosing to do something or not do something for the Lord or not. God knows that if it's for the Lord or not. God knows if it's with gratitude or not. God knows that. God knows if there's doubts or not. God knows if this is done with faith or not. You know, once again, it's, it's, not, he's not, you know, it's not a question of the faith. The, the faith is once for all, it's, it's about the personal faith of the individual in carrying out his 
call of the one faith. And so I think in the context of God being a judge, he summed up by reminding us that ultimately our purpose, our purpose is to live and die for the Lord. That's our purpose. And so the one who is eating is living for the Lord. And the one who's not eating is living for the Lord. The one who is observing is living for the Lord. And the one who is not observing is living forward. Once again, these are matters that you know, God has, has says are liberties you know, that he can choose for himself to do or not do. And the same thing, you know, if today, if, if a person, you know, chose to adhere to food laws of the Old Testament, you know, if a person chooses to hold to food laws of the Old Testament and chooses, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just not eat any of the unclean things, carry over here, I'm not going to eat any of the unclean things, you know, you know, if you want to do that personally, it's okay, he can do that, but it's not required, is not mandated, but personally, they, they can decide what they eat or not eat. Carrie? Well, I was just going to make the comment. I, I, we get hung up a lot on Romans 14 for various reasons, but the overarching thing we have to consider when there is disagreement is, has God legislated? Mm-hmm. And if God's legislated, it no longer becomes within the realm of Romans 14. Mm-hmm. We've got to look at what scripture is, and we have, need to come to an agreement. Now, there is patience mm-hmm. to bring someone to a fuller understanding of, of God. But I've, I've just heard so often something that God has legislated, well, it's Romans 14 because we disagree. That is not what Romans 14 is all about. Yeah. We've got to first look at the word, what has God's truth revealed, and then we make application. But we've got to understand Romans 14 discusses only in areas where God has not legislated in his word. Very good. Thank you for that. And then go back to add two. Because God had legislated. God has legislated regarding, for example, the the overall theme of the the role of the law of Moses. God has legislated on that. And the means of justification. And God has legislated on regard to idolatry. You know, and so, you know, Carrie is right. You know, these are things, you know, that involve that God has not legislated, but we've got to adhere to what God has revealed in the word of truth. Leanne over here in the back. I just want to say, um, basically it's saying not to let, do anything that will make your brother stumble or fall. For instance, back then it was eating of meats and stuff like that. Like you weren't supposed to do that in front of your brother because that would make him sin or whatever. And like today, sometimes people don't celebrate certain holidays or for some reason. You're to be respectful of that and you're to, you're to consider your brother's feeling and you're not to participate in stuff like that. It doesn't mean that you yourself can't participate in stuff like that, but if it's going to cause your brother to stumble or error, then you probably shouldn't do it. That leads right into my kind of my, my final application here in regard to the instructions, you know, in, in regard to things that God is talking about here in Romans 14, 
that are all within, you know, the overarching, as Carrie said, the overarching, you know, truth that when God has spoken and legislated on something, you know, we're not at liberty simply to just disregard that, you know. You know, we only have liberty when it falls within you know, God's plan. And so, you know, once again, with these particular things of you know, those who ate meat and those who did not eat meat for various conscientious reasons, those who observed a, a holy day or did not observe the holy day for, for whatever their conscientious reason was, you know, okay, so that's, that's the situation. So how do you treat your brother in love? Well, you know, you need to lift him up. You know, lift him up. Why? Because he is your brother. That's why. You know, he, he's your brother in Christ. And there's a number of things in, this, in the first 15 verses that clearly says, okay, these are things don't do. And so you can just read down those, okay? You're not going to accept and receive him to quarrel about stuff. That, you know, don't, you know, you're not, that's, not your, that's your, not your motive. You're going to lift him up. But you're not going to receive him and quarrel about things. You're not going to judge him. That is, the point of judging here is condemning him as, as a sinner. You're not going to regard him with content. That is, you're not going to think less of him. He's worthless. He doesn't know what, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, no, you're going to respect him. You know, do not you know, put a stumbling block or put an offense. The point is, as, as Leanne pointed out, the idea of causing him to sin by violating his conscience, going against what he feels is wrong. And of course, he says, don't hurt him, don't destroy him in this way. All of these, in conclusion, is simply this. You know, you know, to do any of these prohibitions... That's what it is. These are prohibitions when it comes to accepting, you know, in fellowship, brother, in a loving fellowship. To, to practice any of these pro- prohibitions is to fail to walk according to love. Yeah. And that's, and that's what you find you know, there at the, at the end of our section today in verse 15. You know, if you do any of these things, you're not loving your brother. Thank you very much for your attention. Appreciate it very much. And your thoughts.